May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm still getting used to the idea of a king. It does feel very odd having a male head of state. It didn't feel right to begin with, but I'm getting used to the idea, even if I've caught myself on quite a few occasions singing God Save the Queen. Fortunately, on none of those occasions was I mic'd up as I am this morning. I suppose in a country which, has sung God Save the, the, which hasn't sung God Save the King for 70 years, there are other people who may have made the mistake too. Blessedly, King Charles III is doing a good job with the occasional dodgy appointment like the new Bishop of Dorking. <laughs> and in celebrating his 75th anniversary, 75th birthday rather last week, is showing plenty of energy and servant-heartedness as he, as he seeks to fulfil the remarkable vows that he made back in May at his coronation in Westminster Abbey. It was quite an experience to be consecrated bishop there just eight weeks ago on that very spot where Charles was consecrated king uh, just a few months after him. The Dean of Westminster made us all laugh during his sermon in that service by imagining what the last judgment might look like in Westminster Abbey. An utter nightmare. For there are over 3,000 people buried in Westminster Abbey, and many of them, if not most of them, arch-enemies in all sorts of ways. There would indeed be a war between the sheep and the goats, with kings and queens on either side of that divide. But for all their very different styles of leadership over the last 800 years, each one of them would have been presented with the example of the King of Kings as a model and a pattern of leadership to hold before them as they exercise their authority over this nation. Today, we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. It's actually a relatively newfangled idea. It was designated uh, a Sunday in the church's calendar uh, first, just 98 years ago in 1925 by Pope Pius XI for the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not a historian or a liturgist, but my understanding is that Pope Pius wanted a slightly less nondescript Sunday for the end of the church's year. One of the things that I absolutely love about being an Anglican, about being part of the Church of England, is the liturgical year. I've loved it since I was a child. It's like a big play, isn't it, that lasts 12 months. 
It begins on Advent Sunday, and we have those first six months of the year that follow the cycle of Jesus' life, right from uh, the patriarchs and the prophets and John the Baptist on Advent Sunday who heralded his coming, to his birth, uh, and then through uh, his time in the wilderness and his public ministry, right up to his passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we have that second six months where we focus not so much on Jesus' life, but on his teaching. That sort of six months that runs from sort of uh, Easter right the way up to, uh, to, the, to today, the last Sunday before Advent. But the ending, perhaps, has been a little uninspiring. For many years in the Church of England, it's been known this Sunday as Stir Up Sunday, simply because the collect in the old prayer book begins, Stir up, O Lord, the hearts of thy faithful people. And it reminded at the same time, I don't think it was intentional, but it reminded so many of us over generations that it was time to stir our Christmas cakes too. But as I say, Pius XI rightly thought that this, the best play, drama, reenactment ever, needed a slightly bolder and more upbeat finale. And so, sincere thanks to him, he introduced this feast of Christ the King. The finale of this 12-month drama, reflecting the finale of the Bible in the book of Revelation, where Christ is on his throne and his kingdom is established over heaven and earth. In one of my favourite hymns, uh, Christ triumphant, ever reigning, saviour, master, king. But there is slightly more to this Sunday than just being the final curtain on this 12-month salvific drama, important though that may be. Particularly in this time when the world seems such a mess and most human beings are struggling to imagine what the end of the world might look like and indeed how soon it might come. Understanding the nature of Christ's kingship is massively important in understanding the nature of the kingdom into which we are called, called to live now as well as in the future when the Bible says that every knee shall bow and earth and heaven shall unite under one rule. One of the blessings of having a three-year cycle of readings is that uh, each year within those three years, we hear a different reading on this Sunday. And each of the different readings uh, on the Feast of Christ the King say something different about the kingship of Jesus. Today we're featuring Matthew's Gospel and a narrative that comes right at the end of uh, Matthew. Matthew was the first book in the Bible I ever studied. This is confession time for me, but uh, in school I was thrown out of RE lessons for being so disruptive. Uh, They found another activity for me, which usually looked like sort of tidying up the stock cupboard or something like that. So it came as something of a surprise to the RE teacher when uh, I hadn't studied RE for O-level 
um, and I went to him and I said, I'd really like to change from chemistry to RE for A-level. And uh, his face looked like uh, he was checking that it wasn't April Fool's Day or something, you know, in his diary. Um, but Matthew was the first book I studied, and I found it utterly fascinating because, um, you may know this, but Matthew, Matthew's gospel was divided into five sections. He uses a little formula uh, in the Greek, which sort of translates as when Jesus had finished saying these things. And the formula appears four times, and it divides the book into five. And of course, Matthew was a Jew writing for Jews. Um, and so um, in, 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 in earlier times, in the, in, in the sort of uh, second century, people who were hearing Matthew's gospel being, um, uh, being recited, if not uh, being able to read it, would have noticed that actually there are five books here. And of course, they mirror the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So actually, the book of Matthew is really saying, here is the new law. Here is the new creation. Here is God's new plan. And each of the books actually has a slightly different emphasis. So uh, the first book in Matthew uh, is is really based on the Sermon on the Mount. The second book is, uh, is the sort of beginning of Jesus' mission. The third book is, is all the parables. Matthew's really neat. He, he, he sort of, um, he appeals to my OCD. You know, there's a place for everything and everything in its place. You want to find a parable in Matthew? They're all in chapter 13. You know, he bundles them all together. Um, and, then, uh, uh, and then the fourth book is really about teachings about the church. And the fifth book is about the last judgment. And this story appears in that fifth section of Matthew, right at the beginning of that fifth section, about the last judgment. So actually, we've always, when we read the Bible, we've always got to sort of understand what the context of what we're hearing, uh, where it's rooted in its context. And here, the the context of this reading is is about the last judgment. We'll come back to that. But this is one of those stories often told, or often called a parable, actually it isn't a parable, which is nearly always misinterpreted. We often think that this gospel story is about three sets of people. The sheep, who are the good people, who sit on the right-hand side of the king. The goats, who are the bad people, who sit on the left-hand side of the king. And then the poor, those who are meant to help. And whether we do so or not plays a part in whether we end up sitting on the right or left-hand side of the king. I've preached, preached some really ropey sermons along those lines. The worst ever was a sermon to uh, uh, was, was a sermon at a, at a celebration of um, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Uh, I was a lifeboat member myself, and I talked about the sheep and the goats in 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 the lifeboat service. The sheep being those that turned up uh, on a cold February night. The crew that turned up on a cold February night at three o'clock in the morning when it was gusting a, a force 10 gale, and the goats being those who were playing Baywatch in the summer when there was a damsel in distress. <laughs> I, I shudder. I, I, I'm embarrassed. Um, but actually, as I've looked at this text a little more, um, that, that's not right. That interpretation isn't what it's about. Chiefly because in rabbinic literature, goats are actually equal to sheep. Uh, In some cases, they're of more value. 
they have a much higher uh, milk yield. And they were always, um, they were always cared for together, sheep and goats. I'm told that sheep and goats, particularly in the Middle East, are quite hard to distinguish sometimes. Um, uh, I think it's sheep have tails that go up and goats down or the other way around. Uh, but they are, they're cared for together. Um, and it's only for particular occasions that, that they are divided. So it's not something about some being good and some being bad. Um, uh, that's a misinterpretation. Um, and then secondly, the theology of this interpretation is a bit inconsistent with the rest of the gospel, which suggests that salvation is not a case of, of, of justification by works or how good you are. So actually, if we read this, if we read this text thinking it's really about you know, how good we are at looking after the poor, uh, the final judgment is really about that, then um, we, we've got that wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus says, that Jesus doesn't say a huge amount about how we should help the poor and those less fortunate than ourselves. He does a massive amount. But I don't think that that's the message in this particular story. I concur with the scholarship that believes that when the text says the least of these my brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean the poor, it means Jesus' own followers. Those who he often refers to as my little ones. Whenever you read that in, in Matthew's gospel, it usually refers, it nearly always refers to Jesus' followers. Therefore, those on the king's right are people who have welcomed Jesus' poor followers and in so doing, have welcomed Jesus. And it's consistent with so much uh, that Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, like in chapter 10, when he sends out the 12, he tells them, whoever receives you, whoever receives my disciples, receives me. So the division isn't between those who care for the poor and those who don't. It's actually between those who receive Jesus or receive his followers and don't. So that makes the message for us quite different. What, what does it say to us today? Um, I want to suggest it says three things. Um, firstly, it says, actually, it's all about Jesus. This is a really important reading that happens right at the beginning of this last discourse in Matthew's Gospel, which focuses on judgment. And the point that Matthew and that Jesus is making is that judgment is all about Jesus. He is the true shepherd of Israel. He is the rightful king. And in him, God exercises his reign and his just judgment. Blessedly, we don't earn our way into the kingdom by good works. If that were the case, I suspect the kingdom of God, if it was like people, people like me, it would be pretty empty. We become part of the kingdom by the grace of King Jesus. And secondly, it gives us a rather different perspective of mission. That actually it's not just about us as strong people exercising a ministry of benevolence, charity and generosity. But also about us as weak people ready to receive from those whom we serve.
sometimes we find it more difficult, don't we, to receive than to give. Um, a little example, um, when, I was, um, when I was made bishop, um, I had a, uh, had a phone call from the funeral directors in the parish where I was last an incumbent. And they said to me, um, Paul, we'd like to give you a gift. Um, and I said, well, that's really, really kind of you, but, but that really isn't necessary. And they went on and they insisted, we want to give you a gift. And uh, eventually they, they made, they, they designed and made my, my shepherd's crook for me. And actually, when I read this, it says to me that, that in a sense that gift was a gift towards, a small gift towards the mission and work of Jesus from, from people who perhaps aren't overtly Christian. But it's, it's, it's their way of serving the church. And Jesus says here, that must be honoured. Um, one of the wonderful things about being part of the Church of England is that people belong in different ways. And, and actually mission is also about allowing people to take part, to give to the kingdom in whatever way um, they can or they sense they would like to. And then thirdly, Jesus the judge will separate those who have responded to him in whatever way they were able from those who have rejected him. That's not our business. Our only concern should be respond, to be re- respond as we are able in the invitation to be sub- subject to his kingship and the perfect life and rule of his kingdom. I've had lots of interesting conversations this year about kingship. I've spoken to people who are more passionate than ever about our monarchy. I've spoken to Republicans who would like to abolish the monarchy today. I've listened to good points on both sides of this conversation. But following the coronation, I've come to my own conclusion that I'd struggle to make make sense of the monarchy outside of a Christian context. For our earthly king is called to be a sacrament, to remind and point us to the one who is our heavenly king. And as defender of the faith, to model discipleship and service as it looks like in the kingdom of God. That was the chief theological foundation on which the coronation was built. So let's pray for King Charles, for ourselves and for this parish, that we would all acknowledge Jesus' kingship and work for the time when his kingdom of love justice and peace will rule over all the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on this feast of Christ the King, we give you thanks for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make us faithful citizens of that kingdom not by works, but by grace. And so be faithful to its values, this Advent and always. Amen.